Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Three base jumpers have been killed in the last two months in Utah, and two men, one from Utah, were injured in an Idaho base jumping accident recently. Base jumping, and base stands for building antenna span earth, grew out of skydiving. Some skydivers, by the way, feel that base jumping gives their sport a bad image. It started to gain a, a more mainstream following the last 15 years. Base jumping business operators, while acknowledging that their sport is dangerous, say that accidents such as the recent ones in Utah receive unfair media coverage. What do you think? Is base jumping just inherently too dangerous to allow? The National Park Service has outlawed this activity on its lands. Are there rules that should be put in place to make the uh, sport and related sports safer? Why do an increasing number of people seek base jumping out? What about the costs borne by governments in search, rescue, and recovery? Have you been base jumping? We'd love to hear your story. Why did you do it? What was the experience like? We'll be talking about this with Steph Davis, owner of Moab Base Adventures. Uh, Steph Davis, welcome back to the program. Thank you. Uh, we talked uh, uh, on occasion of release of your book, uh, Learning to Fly. So we'll talk a little bit more about that uh, as we go along. Tom Aiello is with us. He's chief base instructor at the Snake River Base Academy. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. A little later on, we'll bring in Lisa Bryant with the Bureau of Land Management. Get perspective of a government agency with with this. Let me start with uh, Steph Davis on this. Uh, maybe just uh, starting with the with personal perspective. Why do you do this? Why do you, why do you base jump? Um, I've been a rock climber for about twenty three years. I'm a professional rock climber, and you know, spent a lot of time outdoors a lot of time going up mountains and rock walls and being in high places. And base jumping shares a lot with rock climbing in that you spend a lot of time outside, you get up high, um, you just basically live in the outdoor environment and you're playing with gravity. So there are a lot of things that attract me about it um, as a rock climber. So is it is it, what, adventure, adrenaline, feeling alive? What do you What do you get out of it? Um, I think a big part of the attraction for me is dealing with risk and needing to learn a lot, um, build experience, and use those skills to be able to experience something that, that really is special that um, that normally you couldn't experience, which mm-hmm. is being in this this high environment, doing things that do have risk attached, but learning how to mitigate that risk and and be able to experience these places mm. in a different way. And uh, to remind people about your story, by the way, Learning to Fly, is that the correct title? We got it right? Your book? Yes, it is. Yeah, so that, I imagine that's still out and available. Uh, very, it is. Very mm-hmm. interesting, your story. You started out as a as a pretty famous rock climber, um, mm-hmm. had sponsorships and such, then some crises in your life um, it brought, you, brought you low, and it was, I think, skydiving that... Uh, sort of brought you back, along with your trusty dog. <laughs> Pleasure, yeah. Um, yeah, and that's when I started base jumping. And and I, I think a lot of people get attracted to air sports because it is so different. And, um, and there's a lot of fear attached to, I think many people have done a tandem skydive. It's very, very popular. And And it's very empowering for people to take something that's such an elemental fear, the feeling of falling, and be able to go out and do that and see what it feels like and to learn how to do it in a relatively safe fashion. Mm. And I think for many people, the experience of doing a tandem skydive really changes their life. That's what I've heard from a lot of people. Now this, and we talked about this previously on on the program, uh, it, it would seem to me to, to be fundamentally different. As a climber, the whole object is to not fall, uh, and yet you you switch to. I don't know if you go back and forth these days, climb and and uh, and jump, but as a jumper, that's that's what you do. You you jump. Yeah, and um, I am still a professional climber, although I now have the Moab Base Adventures business um, in Moab as well, and I do a lot of combinations where I will climb up something and then jump off. And it is a pretty dramatic mental shift from holding on Mm. to being able to let go like that. And again, you know, I think that that is a big part of the attraction of doing any outdoor sport is to put yourself outside your normal daily reality and um, 
be able to make these these shifts and be able to learn how to essentially take care of yourself mm-hmm. in an extreme environment. A little bit later in the program, we'll get into this this idea of, um, uh, the, you know, I think you and other operators feel that uh, base jumping gets unfair media attention, but there there's a lot of drama in, involved here. Um, Sean Leary, for example, one of the gentlemen who, who recently died, um, you know, this is, this is very dramatic. He His girlfriend died in his arms after a, a traffic accident, auto accident. This happened in Utah. She apparently made him promise to keep going with the adventure, you know, sports, keep keep alive in, in a sense. Um, and I, I think he credited uh, continuing with this as sort of bringing him back. Yes, yes. Um, it was really, really sad. Um, everything about it is sad, obviously. But um, I think the beauty that we find is in, and, for example, that promise that Sean made to Roberta to not stop living mm-hmm. and um, to keep reaching for that joy that we get from um, pushing ourselves and from living outdoors. Let me turn to uh, Tom Aiello. Um, I, uh, similar question. Why, why do you, why did you gravitate toward this, uh, toward base jumping? Well, honestly, I think it's important to recognize that different people approach base jumping for different reasons. So any answer that we give you is going to be personal to us. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's also important to recognize that the reasons why people continue to jump are sometimes different from the things that brought them into the sport in the first place. Uh, at this stage in my life, honestly, base jumping is my alone time. I'm running a business which is very busy. I have two small children. When I go out and make a jump, which I do most mornings, um, that's my hour of time when the phone's not ringing and my kids don't need something and I'm not trying to answer an email when I can just be alone with myself. Uh, and it's helpful for me to do that outdoors, but everyone does that in a different way. Uh, I wouldn't say that there's any sort of adrenaline rush attached to this activity uh, for me or really for most experienced jumpers. It's a lot more meditative, almost calming experience rather than a big, exciting rush. <laughs> uh, Steph Davis, would you agree with that? Or would... Yes. Mm-hmm. I think that Tom said that so well. Um, I I agree with what he says, that different people do things for different reasons. But I think that um, definitely for me, he just summed it up perfectly. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now, Tom Aiello, uh, so the people that come to you uh, to, you know, to learn how to do this and and do it, uh, I guess there's a broad range of reasons. Maybe you talk to people about this. I'm not sure. What, What would you say? A range of reasons why people do this. I certainly have talked to almost every one of my students about why they want to base jump because there are physical risks involved, and I consider it to be my responsibility to make sure that they're aware of those risks and then that they balance those risks in the context of their life. So an important part of that is a risk-reward analysis. What is it that you're hoping to get out of base jumping or want to get out of it? Why do you want to do this? And then what is the risk level that you're taking? Um, I see all kinds of different reasons. I do occasionally see people who are you know, in a psychologically difficult place and are using base jumping as an active form of therapy. Uh, And I'd say that's the minority, although historically, certainly, I think that that has been true. And for me personally, that was definitely true when I started jumping 15 years ago. Mm. Um, But at this stage, I see a lot of people who are more or less mainstream skydiving participants and want to try to get out of the airplane and out into wilderness and experience something that's not quite as mechanical. Um, I also see people who see this as sort of, you know, one of the areas they can try with their skill set because my students come to me with, with hundreds of skydives before they, they enroll in my course. So they have a number of skills, and they're looking for a way to continue challenging and developing their skills uh, and also just to have a different experience. It's an experience that's very unusual and can be a big personal growth experience for a lot of people. I wonder if you could uh, maybe take us back. Um, I, I assume you're familiar with uh, some of the history of, of how base jumping started. I, it grew out of skydiving, understand? And then I guess people decided, well, I, I can use a parachute and jump off of buildings, antennas, spans, earth. That's what base stands for, apparently. Right. Uh, base jumping, I mean, the, the first parachute jumps ever made were made from objects because the parachutes, parachutes predate aircraft. But base jumping in a modern sense sort of was initially conceptualized in the 1960s uh, when a guy named Mike Pelkey and a guy named Brian Schubert, who were skydivers at Lake Elsinore in California, decided that they were going to try and jump from a cliff called El Capitan in Yosemite Valley. And in 1966, they made that jump on what was at the time 
standard skydiving gear, uh, which involved round parachutes and heavy boots and a lot of other things we don't normally use a lot of today skydiving. Uh, that jump was a success in the sense that they both lived, but a, a bit of an adventure in the sense that they both had some difficulties with landing and they didn't know they couldn't steer their round parachutes and, and there were definitely issues. So base jumping then sort of didn't resurface again until 1979. In 1979, a man also from Southern California named Carl Banish realized that skydiving technology and parachute technology had advanced to the point where the parachutes were steerable, you could fly them away from things and land. And in fact, this idea of jumping off this cliff, which he had heard stories about at the drop zone, uh, was now really feasible as a repeatable recreational activity, something you didn't just do once in your life, but that you continued to do uh, with the expectation that you would be able to continue to participate. Um, through the 80s and early 90s, base jumping was largely underground. It was during that time that we developed many of our modern techniques and gear, uh, and also that the acronym BASE began to be used to describe the kinds of objects that were jumped off of. The first object that was not El Capitan, not a cliff, that was jumped off of was a television antenna, a transmission antenna in Texas, which one of the guys who had jumped with Carl Banish saw every day on his commute to work. Um, his name is Phil Smith. And he realized that he could climb up to the top of this and jump off of it, which he did, uh, and sort of created a whole shift in the way that this very small group of base jumpers emerging saw the world in terms of what they could jump off of. Mm. Um, through the 80s, most base jumping was done you know, in the dark of night off of buildings and antennas and things that were not necessarily legal. Uh, and most base jumping was done in the U.S., in California and Texas, um, although base jumping also began to take off in Europe, especially in France at that time. Uh, in the 90s, base jumping started to emerge from the shadows, and we were able to start finding legal places. Uh, for example, almost all the land owned by the Bureau of Land Management in the Moab area uh, allows base jumping without permit or restriction. And so many of those areas were found, and jumpers began to talk to each other, and jumping came out into daylight. Um, then around 2000, we saw some substantial advances in gear, things like uh, something called the tailgate, which I could explain on a technical basis, but all you need to know is that it makes jumping safer. Um, and bottom skin inlets on canopies, some other, some other big pieces of safety equipment were added. Uh, and at the same time, we had cameras that were small enough for people to take them on a jump. And we started having Internet dissemination where people could put these videos up on the Internet and other people could watch them and decide they, too, wanted to experience this. So around 2000, we saw an increase in safety, an increase in legal site accessibility, and also an increase in shared visual images uh, to describe and convey the jump. And I think those things work together. In the last 10 years, we've seen a dramatic upsurge in the number of participants and the number of people interested uh, in base jumping. Mm -hmm. Now, I understand that some in the skydiving community are a little leery about base jumping. They feel that it reflects poorly on their sport. I don't know if you've heard that or, or well, seen that. Well, there is some truth to that. Yeah, go, go ahead, Steph. You want to take that? That is changing. Uh, you, you think that's changing? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think in the beginning of base, um, as the history that Tom was giving, there was a real stigma attached because it was perceived as illegal. Um, and unsafe, but you don't really see that so much anymore mm -hmm. in skydiving. Now, you still do have people that do... It's fair to say that skydivers yeah, saw, past tense, a stigma attached to base jumping. Okay. Uh, because those days are really, you know, almost a decade behind us yeah. now. There still are illegal jumps. I, I saw a video recently, <laughs> pretty spectacular footage, uh, uh, some people jumping off of One World Trade Center. I think they turned themselves in. Uh, but but there's still an element, I believe, that uh, you know does it illegally. Yeah, I mean, certain sites are illegal. I mean, when you're dealing with private property, such as a building, there's so many liability issues attached that there's definitely going to be a conflict between a property owner um, fearing liability and somebody coming into the building hmm. um, trying to do something dangerous. But, again, that's just one object, one place. Um, as Tom pointed out, we have a lot of legal sites available to us. For example, in Moab, most of the land is controlled by the Bureau of Land Management, and base jumping is accepted as any other recreational activity here. Mm -hmm. We're going to take a, a break. When we come back, we will bring into the conversation Lisa Bryant, speaking of the Bureau of Land Management. Uh, she's with the BLM. And we'll talk about um, the, the view from, the, from government 
National Park Service, by the way, has outlawed this. BLM allows it. We'll talk about uh, the perspective of the BLM. And we're going to be talking about risk. We'll also hear a report from our reporter, Elaine Taylor, uh, talking of, actually has some quotes from uh, two of our guests here, talking about media coverage. We're going to be talking about that. They believe that a lot of media coverage uh, unfairly uh, singles out uh, base jumping. And uh, talk about risk. And there are sort of dueling reports that I've been reading here on, on risk. Although, I think uh, our guests would agree base jumping is a risky activity. We'll have more on this. and We'd love to get your perspective. Have you been base jumping or any other related sport? We'd love to get your, ex- your experience. What's your view of this? Uh, what ought to be done? is Should it be legal or illegal? Uh, what Are there reforms needed? The number is 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495, or you can join us by email to upraxcess at gmail.com. A third way is to join us on our Utah Public Radio Facebook page. More following break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread at 300 South and 300 West in Logan, open Monday through Saturday until 3, offering 100% whole grain raisin, oatmeal date, and millet breads. And by Colligan Water of Cache Valley, family-owned and operated for more than 62 years, providing Colligan bottled water, salt delivery, or soft and conditioned water. Hey Colligan Man, service from the man in blue. Online at logan.colliganman.com. Hi, it's Lynn Rosetto Casper. This week we're talking about the Rodney Dangerfield of bodily fluids, saliva, with science writer Mary Roach. And what about you, Michael Stern? Lynn, we're going for some politically correct huevos scorcheros on the coast of Oregon. That's the Splendid Table from APM. Tuesday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. I'm Tom Williams with Utah Public Radio. Thank you so much for being a member of Utah Public Radio. Without you, we truly couldn't provide the service that you've come to depend on. And if you haven't become a member of Utah Public Radio, it's never too late. You can make a pledge that works for you at upr.org. We strive to be your source of lifelong learning and connect you with the community where you listen and well beyond. Your membership matters. Again, thank you. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking about base jumping. This is one of those extreme sports, so-called adrenaline sports, although our guests have told us early in the program that experienced base jumpers or skydivers uh, see this or feel this as as sort of meditative. Uh, We are talking about this. A lot of media attention has been focused on this because uh, three base jumpers have been killed in Utah in the last two months, uh, and a couple of... uh, Jumpers in Idaho have been injured. One of those was from Utah. This, of course, has focused attention on the sport, which happens a lot in in the West, of course, Utah and Idaho and other other states. Uh, and uh, so we had a report recently from UPR's Elaine Taylor um, talking to uh, two of our guests that we're talking to today. The sport is inherently risky, uh, operators say, but uh, some base jumpers think the sport is getting undue negative attention. Here's Elaine's brief report. Base or building antenna span earth jumping evolved out of skydiving in the late 1970s. The sport only started to gain a more mainstream following 15 years ago as more legal areas to jump were discovered and advances to base gear made jumps less risky. Tom Aiello is the chief base instructor at Snake River Base Academy. He says the increased number of fatalities is to be expected. As the number of participants increase, the total number of incidents will increase even if the incident rate itself, the incidence per jump, is decreasing. Although from the outside, you may look at it and say it seems like incidents have climbed a lot. Incidents per participant haven't actually, uh, and in fact, may have decreased in the last 10 years. Steph Davis, owner of Moab Base Adventures, says incident rates may also be amplified by those new to the sport. With a lot of people starting the sport, it's a, you know, it's a funny sport. There's not really a safety net to learn it. So I think that you have a lot of accidents with people learning because it's kind of a sink or swim through the learning process. Aiello and Davis agree base jumping is inherently dangerous, though both think the sport gets unfair media coverage when accidents occur. It's kind of intriguing to me that when someone dies base jumping, that that becomes national news and then 
you know, it's equally tragic and awful when people die river rafting or, you know, even hiking. It happens so much. In the last five years, there have been 693 fatalities in the national parks. A majority of the deaths were caused by drowning and automobile accidents. An official from Zion National Park says two people were killed in the park in 2012 from climbing and canyoneering-related incidents. One fatal fall was reported in 2013, and the two recent base deaths have been the only fatalities within the park so far this year. With Utah Public Radio, I'm Elaine Taylor. So that's Elaine Taylor's uh, report uh, setting the scene. There are a couple of themes there that we'll pursue uh, for the rest of the program, the media attention and the risk as compared to other sports. I want to look at, uh, from the perspective of government, and uh, bring in now uh, Lisa Bryant with the Bureau of Land Management. Welcome to the program. Good morning. Thank you very much. Well, what is your position there with the BLM? I'm the assistant field manager for resources, um, and then I also help out with public affairs, which is why I'm able to speak with you today. Okay. Uh, so it is th- this activity uh, is allowed on BLM lands? That is correct. Uh, it, it, not allowed on, on the National Park Service lands. It, it, is there specific s- statutory, um, I guess, rules that allow the, the National Park Service to outlaw, or was that just a decision by the BLM we're, we're going to allow this? I cannot speak to the Park Service regulations. Um, in BLM, um, both Stephanie touched on folks testing themselves, and Tom talked about different reasons people jump. And basically on public lands, people come to experience public lands for a whole variety of reasons and a whole variety of different activities, ranging from people hiking, seeking solitude, to mountain biking, um, river rafting, and then also to some of these more hydrenaline activities such as such as base jumping and uh, jeeping. You know, there's there's a lot of activities that we have here in the Moab area, and it's a very, very uh, strong recreation program. And so BLM essentially um, uh, tries to provide space um, on the national system public lands for all of those types mm. of activities and provide room for all of those that come to visit us to be able to experience the really beautiful and creative and an area that we have here on the Colorado Plateau and the Canyonlands region um, to be able to experience that the way that that they wish. Mm-hmm. So the BLM's view is, I think you stated it well, this is public land and uh, there's a broad range of public uses and that, that includes base jumping. That does, yes. Yeah. Is, is there any kind of permitting process or what, uh, what, what, what goes on to, or, or can you just go out and, and base jump? For private users, um, basically, you can go out. Now, you still have to follow all other rules and regulations, camping and designated sites. You have to stay on designated roads and trails. You can't drive up to the cliff edge. You know, we want to make sure that we are protecting the resources, and the local climbing and jumping community has been pretty good about that. Um, and so, and we also act that, ask that those who are recreating consider other users as well. Um, you know, you don't want to be doing this, putting other folks in any kind of a situation um, that might compromise their experience. So balancing all the different recreation uses is always um, a challenge. But um, now that's for private users. Mm-hmm. For commercial users, so say you wanted to guide someone or um, help out in that sort of a way, um, in that case it requires what we call a special recreation use permit. And with those types of permits, then we can look more carefully at um, the location that's being requested, making sure that it's appropriate. Um, in some cases, a lot of the, the jumping seems to be occurring in some canyon areas that are also um, critical wildlife habitat. So maybe we want to look at the time of year where that would be appropriate um, or suggest another another location um, that might work better if the person um, coming asking for that permit um, suggests something that we feel might have another type of user conflict. So we usually work with proponents that come to us asking for those kinds of commercial permits, um, special recreation permits, and that would be for an event as well um, or to actually perform a commercial guide type of um, experience and um, so does that help? Yes, yes, definitely. Uh, okay. Yes. 
Uh, Steph Davis, I wonder, um, would you, uh, it's probably a fairly tight-knit community, at least the, 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 the very experienced-based jumpers, uh, it, do you hear or see uh, people who are maybe a little less experienced than you would like going out and trying to do this alone? Um, yes, well, you know, as described really well, um, there are two different ways that base jumping is happening in Moab. And the majority is just independent base jumpers that come here. And then, of course, Moab Base Adventures, we do have a permit from the BLM because we do guide and instruct and hold events. And so we work closely with the BLM for that reason. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the base community is tight-knit, and it's a small town. It's a small place. And jumpers all tend to talk together. So... So, you know, we do see a lot, especially in the high season, we see a lot of visitors coming to Moab. We see, um, recently, we see a lot of newer jumpers coming to Moab to base jump. And traditionally, Moab has been considered not a really beginner place to come when you're not very experienced. And the reason is that the cliffs are not very tall here. Generally, um, because of geology, the cliffs that you find here range from 200 to 450 feet with the sheer vertical drop-off. And that's considered pretty short. And so that is one reason that we traditionally have expected people to go and gain their experience elsewhere. For example, at the bridge in Idaho, um, getting trained and then practicing and then going to taller objects, maybe go to Europe where the big cliffs there are legal and you don't have to deal with illegality. Um, you know, maybe different objects that are taller. And then when you have a lot of experience and a lot of skill, then come to Moab, to the lower cliffs. Um, the problem we have in the States is that most of our accessible tall cliffs are in national parks, and therefore they're illegal. And so what you have is you have people that go to the bridge, and they learn, and they practice there, and they say, hey, you know, there's nowhere legal that I can go on a tall, safe cliff because otherwise I need to fly to Europe. So Moab's there, it's accessible, it's legal, I'm going to go to Moab. And that's when we start seeing newer jumpers coming here without the experience. So that, that, that probably, as an experienced jumper and a business owner, that probably makes you nervous. It does. Um, you know, one reason that I have Moab-based adventures is because we do want to have something for people, you know, and say, hey, if you go to the bridge and you learn how to base jump there and you train, and then you stay up there and you make a lot of jumps and you, you are very focused in your training, then, yes, you can come to us in Moab and we have a first cliff course. And so we're going to take you through that transition um, and just really teach you the skills that you need to make your own decisions, to assess conditions, to assess the object, and to be as safe as possible. And so the idea is that instead of, you know, throwing people out <laughs> alone to sink or swim, that they do have a way to come here and continue their learning. Mm -hmm. And you're, you're talking about, in this in the Lane's piece, you talked about the fact that this sport really doesn't have a sort of a safety net, quote-unquote, period. It's, uh, you know, even if you're uh, jumping uh, as, as a beginner off a fairly, I guess, quote-unquote, safe uh, area, it's, it's still, you know, there's no safety net. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, when you leave the airplane or you leave the bridge or you leave the cliff, you need to get your parachute out and you need to pilot that parachute to a safe place and you need to land it softly so you don't hit the ground. And so nobody else can do that for you. And I think most jumpers who have been in the sport long enough become more and more what we call conservative because we've experienced so much and seen so much. And so, you know, there is a, there is a progression to do this in the most reasonable way possible. And most jumpers agree that that progression involves a lot of skydiving um, that continues throughout your career as a base jumper and then starts with a, a, you know, a proper course of instruction. For example, Tom trains new base jumpers. Um, we do as well. A few companies do it at the bridge. And that is you know very specific, very focused training. So the very best thing you can do is get lots of skydiving, take a legitimate, well-recognized course at the bridge to introduce yourself to base jumping, and then make really good choices as you progress through your career. You know, every object is different. 
some of them are more technical, more inherently dangerous than others. And some are, they have a lot more what we call outs. They would be safer to jump. And so, you know, you don't always have to jump every object <laughs> the day you think of jumping it. And the important thing is to pace yourself, to always be asking a lot of questions, always be learning as much as possible, and always be willing not to jump. Let me turn uh, turn back to Lisa Bryant from the, the BLM. Uh, I want to go a little later to uh, Tom Aiello, talk about those beginning jumpers and uh, and what that's like, and get into talking about risk and media coverage. I know Lisa Bryant has to go here in, in a couple of minutes. Uh, I wonder if you could talk about perspective of government officials. You're, you're, of course, in charge of this land and what goes on, so you try to set up rules and regulations and uh, allow for broad public use. But as a public official... I put myself in your place, I'm probably pretty worried throughout the day, especially the extreme sports. You know, I'm worried throughout the day on not just the extreme sports, but everything. I mean, I want people to be able to enjoy the public lands, but to do it in a way that they're feeling safe and that it's responsible and that they're not impacting other users or, you know, that we're all figuring out how to share the space that we have and to manage those lands um, as best we can. Stephanie mentioned that there are accidents um, in all of these types of activities that we do. And so for every person who's out there, it really is up to the individual to ask themselves, why do I want to do this? What are the risks for me? What are my capabilities? What's my skill set? What are the things that I perceive? And then how do I mitigate that? So if I'm out hiking, I want to make sure that I've got maps, that I've got water, extra food, um, somebody knows where I'm going. You know, all of the basic things for any kind of an activity when you are out in the environment. Desert environments, especially these canyons, um, present some unique challenges, and, and we just ask that people be prepared. Um, and that they also, you know, be considerate of all the other users that they share the public lands with. So it's not, it's not just high adrenaline, high activity, you know, high octane activities like base jumping. It's everything. I want everybody to have a great time mm -hmm. <laughs> enjoying their public lands, whether that just be a quiet sit down by the river or whether it be a base jump. Everybody has that right and has that um, I just that privilege. I want them to be able to experience their lands in a way that suits them. But I don't want anyone. I, it's tragic when our community loses somebody. And my heart goes out to the, the families and the friends of, of folks, especially when lives are cut short by accidents. And um, it just is kind of tragic. And so what I would like is for everyone just to be real careful and think about what their skill set is, get the appropriate training for whatever activity it is that they're doing um, so that they can go home with pictures and great stories and good feelings at the end of that trip, not some kind of tragic reminder of it. Uh, just, just before we let you go, um, yeah. just, to, just to reiterate what you said, I agree totally that, uh, you know, it's tragic when we, when we lose lives. Um, but there, there is an economic cost as well, isn't there, that uh, has to be factored in? There's, there's search and rescue, uh, search and recovery. That, that's borne by government agencies, you know, sometimes more by the sheriff's departments and counties and such. But um, that has to be factored in as well, doesn't it? It does. Um, and I know that Grand County has one of the highest incidents of search and rescue in Utah. And it does put a strain on local county budgets. And I know that um, some of the the different um, activity groups try and help out as much as they can. I know that um, some of the climbers have been involved in helping with a lot of the rescues that we have because the canyons and the areas here are really remote. Um, and so there is a cost. Um, that is part of what we do as far as trying to manage public lands and, and um try and provide serve service for the public. Mm -hmm. uh, by the way, just a, another post-final question. Uh, yeah, yeah. Is, is the, this kind of this new development, uh, I don't know what you call it, bungee swinging, is that, that allowed on BLM lands? 
Uh, rope swinging, I believe. Rope swinging, okay. To. Yes, yeah, bungee yes. swinging would be a bad idea. Uh, I guess um, so, yes. I didn't think that through. <laughs> um, rope swinging is also allowed on BLM lands um, by private users. Uh, we have not um, issued any commercial um, or special recreation use permits for that. Um, we are looking at user conflicts related to that. And again, like the other um, activities, looking at where it's appropriate um, and, and again, encouraging people to be extremely um, careful, well-prepared, um, get the training you need, make sure your equipment's in good shape, um, work with people um, who have more experience. Um, that's my message to anyone. Um, attempting that kind of activity. At this point in time, it is definitely still legal for public users um, and private entities wanting to do that. All right. um, but again, there may be some areas where there's conflict. Um, there's a lot of noise and shouting and hollering that goes with some of that stuff that can be kind of disruptive to, um, particularly during critical lambing habitat times. And so there are some other resource issues and conflicts that we also want to make sure we address um, in looking at that down the road. All right. Uh, I know you need to get going here. Uh, Lisa Bryant with the uh, Bureau of Land Management. Thank you so much for joining us. Absolutely. I appreciate the opportunity and um, encourage everyone to enjoy their public lands and do it safely. <laughs> All right. All right. <laughs> Thank definitely. you so much. We're going to take a brief break. When we come back, we'll continue with Steph Davis, uh, who is uh, with uh, a base jumping operation in uh, Moab. Uh, Moab Base Adventures is the name of his business. Tom Aiello will, uh, will stay with us as well. He's chief base instructor at Snake River Base Academy. We'll talk about risks, especially as juxtaposed with, say, skydiving or hiking or, uh, or canoeing. And we'll talk about media coverage as well. We'll continue talking about base jumping uh, following this break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Utah Humanities Council, empowering Utahns to improve their communities through active engagement in the humanities, online at utahhumanities.org. Did you know that school trust lands have been around since 1765? These are lands set aside so they can generate funds to benefit students. Utah's trust lands generated $89 million in 2011, and 88% of that money was invested in a permanent school fund. Did You Know That is made possible by the USU Emma Eccles Jones College of Education and Human Services. More at cehs.usu.edu. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking about base jumping. This is a sport which grew out of skydiving. Base, by the way, stands for building antenna span earth. Usually base jumpers, well, always, they'd have a parachute. Uh, sometimes they uh, have, um, Tom Aiello, what do you call that little, uh, or Steph, what do you call that suit where you fly? You call it a wingsuit. Oh, a wingsuit. So sometimes you have a wingsuit. <laughs> um, and uh, sometimes people will jump um, mostly illegally off buildings and, and antennas and such. The sport has evolved into uh, finding legal areas that usually would involve uh, spans and earth, part of, part of this acronym. Uh, and uh, every once in a while, we, we have fatalities in, in this sport, and uh, so, sometimes coming in groups. Three base jumpers have been killed in the last two months in Utah. Uh, two men, one of those from Utah, were injured at, uh, in an Idaho base jumping accident recently. I, I think, uh, Tom, that, that happened at the bridge, this, this accident? Uh, we did have an accident, what, last week at the bridge. There yeah. was no fatal injury. In that right, accident. right. They survived, thankfully. This was right. a this was a couple of men doing uh, it's described as a tandem jump. I don't I don't understand it very well. Uh, but... It was definitely not a tandem jump. Okay. A tandem is a jump that involves basically a non-jumper being strapped to a very experienced jumper. Usually, mm -hmm. tandems are done skydiving out of aircraft. Okay. Um, the jump that that had the accident here was what we call a two-way, which means two experienced jumpers who are each jumping with their own gear uh, simultaneously from the same object. And they uh, they just they made a mistake, I guess, and. Uh, the jump that they attempted was extremely complex and required very precise timing, and unfortunately the exit execution was not ideal. Uh, one jumper was physically holding the deployment component of the other jumper system at exit, meaning when they left 
the bridge. One guy was in control of both of their parachutes deploying or not. Mm. Uh, and because their exit timing was not perfect, they drifted apart, and one jumper's parachute ended up basically deploying into the other jumper's body, which caused an entanglement. Mm. Uh, and then the parachutes never inflated properly. Okay. Well, thankfully, they survived. So we're, yes. we're, we're they both survived that, and uh, yeah. are stable now. Yeah. Uh, so, Tom, I, I wanted to uh, talk a bit about risk. Uh, I think each of you in Elaine's report there um, talked about the, the fact that you think maybe the, the risk is is distorted, as reported at least in the in the media. And I, I was there. There, I went looking for studies that have been done on this. There hasn't been a whole lot of activity. One uh, extrapolation from a study I saw that your odds of dying in base jumping were one in sixty, which would you know. I, I'm I'm very risk averse. I wouldn't. The I'm, only actual clinical study that's been done on risk levels in base jumping was done in Stavanger in Norway, uh, measuring jumps done from a cliff called Sherog and then a cliff called Smelvegen, which are in a place called Lisa Fjord, uh, and that was an actual clinical study conducted by physicians. Mm. Uh, in that study, they found that the chance of injury on a base jump from those specific objects was one in 500 jumps. Uh, and we're counting as an injury anything that requires any sort of medical attention, so a sprained ankle, for example, on landing. The chance of fatality found in that study was one in 2,500 jumps. Mm, okay. Uh, and so, and I think I'm looking at something that I think I'm looking at that study is juxtaposed to other studies. This is from Norway, and this is, I found, I think, uh, Oxford University site. Uh, right. So if you, if you compare that to uh, skydiving, one in 100,000 jumps, the fatality rate, um, say canoeing, one in 750,000, rock climbing, one in 320,000, still a, a much higher fatality rate. Do you attribute that to the fact this is a new sport, it'll get better, or, or do you think that's just skewed statistics? You know, I guess there's a couple things I want to point out. The first one is that the level of risk involved in a sport does not measure the worthwhileness of the sport itself or the right of people to participate in it. There are inherent risks in all kinds of things, snowmobiling, riding motorcycles, owning assault rifles. Uh, and all of those things are things that we are legally allowed to do because it's our own job to take care of ourselves. It's not the job of, of somebody else to decide what we can and cannot do. Um, as free human beings, we have a right to take risks if we have personally decided that for us, those risks are worth the rewards that we gain from them. Um, that said, I think it's definitely true that base jumping has a higher risk level than most recreational activities. Um, there are some other recreational activities in the same order of magnitude of risk. We're talking about things like cave diving, scuba diving in caves, or uh, high-altitude mountaineering, particularly solo mountaineering, in which climbers climb peaks in the Himalayas with no oxygen and no support. So there are other recreational activities that reach the same levels of risk, um, but I don't think any of us are under the illusion that base jumping is as safe as many of the other things we've done in our lives. It's certainly a higher risk level, which is why we are so careful when we do it. Is there an arc to a, a particular sport? For example, skydiving, early days of skydiving, you might have seen a higher risk. I don't know. Do, do you think this sport will, will get a bit safer as as developments come along? Yes. I think the, the short answer is yes and no. Part of the problem is that we're viewing base jumping through a large lens, and so we're categorizing slider-down base jumping off of bridges uh, which is very well established, and we understand everything, and we've reached the safe part of that arc. Uh, and at the same time, lumped in with base jumping, we're talking about proximity flying with wingsuits, uh, where you're flying a wingsuit at speeds in excess of 100 miles an hour along a hill or cliff line. And that activity, proximity flying, is still in its early days. Um, today, something like 80% of the base fatalities we've experienced in the last four or five years have been proximity flight accidents. Mm. So... You have to understand that if, if we factor out wingsuit proximity flight, base jumping is a whole lot safer than it was 15 years ago. Mm. Um, but at the same time, even if we include those wingsuit proximity flight accidents, it's still not so dangerous that you know one out of every five people is going to die next week. Mm -hmm. this, is, this is an activity that reasonable human beings understand the risks and choose to participate in. Yeah. Uh, Steph Davis, I want to turn back to you. Um, talk about the media coverage. Do you... Uh... You see at least some media coverage as unfair when we have uh, fatalities in base jumping? Oh, I I'm, think unfair might be a strong word. I, I would say maybe um, disproportionate. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that for better or for worse, humans have this fascination with flying. And I think that 
I have personally noticed that anytime anybody sees base jumping, whether it's they pull off on the side of the road because they see somebody base jumping off a cliff, there's, for some reason, it's got this extra, extra fascination to people. And so I think that that might explain why it's national news um, when there's an injury doing a base jump, and maybe it's not national news when somebody gets hurt on a mountain bike or an ATV. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We just have a couple minutes left. I want to turn back to Tom Aiello. Um, and uh, I want you to talk about people that come to, to jump off the bridge there. Uh, often new to base jumping, I guess. Some of these, or many of them, will have skydived before. I'm not sure. If I put myself in their place, well, first of all, I would never do it. I'm just too risk-averse. But uh, talk about those new jumpers. Twin Falls, Idaho is, without a doubt, the largest single training location for new base jumpers. Um, a very large percentage of new jumpers make their first jumps here. The reason for that is because it's very safe in terms of base objects. So we see a lot of new jumpers. Um, we see plenty of new jumpers who come out by themselves and try to work it out. Many more people who come out with their friends who are jumpers of some level of experience, uh, somewhere between beginners themselves and intermediate or even very experienced jumpers. And then we see also commercial instruction. Uh, this is certainly the, the largest single location for commercial instruction in the world. Uh, and I operate the largest base jumping school in the world, but there are many other commercial operators who are teaching courses at the bridge as well, many of whom drive or fly in because it's a, such a suitable location. Mm -hmm. And they're looking for, I guess they're looking for adventure? What are they looking for? Well, everyone's looking for something different. Yeah. Uh, you'd have to ask yourself what you were looking for. Um, some people are looking for uh, a way to clear their minds. Some people are looking for an adventure that they haven't had before. Some people are looking for a new social group. Um, all of these things are things that people can take away from base jumping. Uh, I've certainly seen people who come from skydiving into base jumping and say that they're motivated by a distaste for the mechanized aspects of skydiving, reliance on you know aircraft and fossil fuels and things like that. And I also see people who are who are motivated by a distaste for the social aspects of skydiving. Hmm. They they don't get along with the people they're skydiving with, and base jumping can be done on a much more solitary level. Interesting. But uh, the motivations are really wide. Um, some people are just looking for the next thing to do. And the truth is most people who are base jumping are base jumpers for a year or less. I'll have students come through. They'll take a class. They'll do a bunch of base jumping. They'll see what it's about. They'll have some fun. And they'll move on to the next thing in their life. Hmm. Uh, and, and that's a very normal human pattern. You see the same thing with people who you know, are kayakers or rock climbers or things like that. Right. Uh, although base jumping, I think, is higher activity, so they move through faster. But there's a, a throughput in any activity. We'll have to leave it there. Out of time. We've been talking with... Uh... Steph Davis, owner of Moab Base Adventures, and Tom Aiello, Chief Base Instructor at Snake River Base Academy. Thanks so much. Thank you. And thanks for listening to Access Utah. Deseret News columnist Steve Eaton. People are quite worked up about Obamacare, gay marriage, and the duck hunters. While those are important topics to debate and pontificate about, there's another matter that generates little discussion until it invades your life. It's usually an affliction to the young, but recently it has come for me. And don't kid yourself, it may soon come for you too. It's called the burpee. Think back to junior high. Burpees were an unnatural form of exercise that includes dropping to the floor, doing a push-up, and then leaping to your feet. It turns out there are some people older than 55 years old who believe that leaping in the air should only be done for very important things like pizza buffets, a real chocolate mousse, or a three-month vacation in Maui. And even then, this leaping should never be done after doing a push-up. I recently joined a gym that's far different than any other I've experienced. When you go to the gym, you're immediately part of a class of people who have decided they will pay money for the opportunity to work themselves to exhaustion with a trainer who knows exactly how this can best be done. There's no slinking off to walk on a treadmill in the corner. There's no pacing about with a towel between reps or on the way to a drinking fountain. The teacher is one with years of experience, a trainer who goes to seminar and trains other personal coaches. He's invented his own exercise equipment, hosted his own infomercials, and teaches a style that emphasizes proper movement over tonnage repeatedly push. Nearly all the exercises he has people do are non-traditional things with straps, ropes, and odd-shaped heavy things. Remember the movie Rocky where he was going to fight the high-tech Russian and he prepared by working out in a barn? picking up heavy stuff to subpar Rocky music? It's sort of like that. 
Well, he never has us just sprint away and run to the top of a nearby mountain like Rocky did. For me, everything feels like an unbelievable workout. It starts with an internal soundtrack that is noble and bold, like a superhero would have, and it ends up sounding like a drug-induced slow-motion nightmare. So you can see that throwing a burpee into the mix is just wrong on so many levels. I don't leap to my feet. I get up slowly and painfully, like Rocky does after he's been knocked down. The look on my face is grumpy. It just doesn't make sense. Imagine the president gives the State of the Union address and they cut away to the opposition response only to discover a senator sitting in deep thought. She then looks up and says, I thought he had some good ideas. Give me a few minutes. I'm trying to think of what we could do to make them better. That's about as likely to happen as it is for me to leap to my feet after doing a push-up. If you read my column before, you know that I'm not tall enough for my weight. I should be about seven foot six. Before I go to the gym, I'd like to imagine what it would be like to be a fit person who rarely wears a shirt and spends most of his time slowly rotating, showing off his abs and muscles like the guys doing the Bowflex infomercials. After my workouts, I move like I'm the subject of an inspirational movie about a man who was buried in a gravel pit landslide for two weeks and miraculously survives. In fact, he walks away even more overweight than he was before the crush. Think Reader's Digest meets the Hallmark Channel meets the Twilight Zone. Once a new person came to the gym, and in a rare moment when I could actually speak, I lied to her to be funny and impress her. Do you know that last week at this time I weighed 540 pounds, I said, as I tried to keep from going off the end of the treadmill. Now I only weigh 520 pounds. Good for you, she said in a supportive way. I'd been hoping she would roll our eyes and tell me that there was no way I was more than 500 pounds. My wife said she may have been just trying to be polite and play along like strangers do when I tell them stories about my time as a rodeo cowboy and a synchronized swimmer. She may have felt it better to just encourage me before I tripped, fell on her treadmill, and cleaned us both out of the exercise business. This is not a pretty business. I keep at it, knowing that at the very least I will make everyone in the class feel better about themselves. I spend much of my time trying to figure out a way out of the burpees. I once tried to put an end to the class by shouting in my best trainer impersonation that everyone had done well and that's it for the night. It was a desperate and ill-conceived approach because the instructor, who was normally quite supportive, was standing right there. The next time, he had us do burpees again. Only before we leaped to our feet, we were to do so with a weight that we were supposed to thrust over our heads. That's one principle to remember when it comes to being an overweight old person in the gym. No, it can always get worse. So next time you see me, would you make some kind of encouraging remark about how good I look? Would you resist the temptation to make some joke about me being a 500-pound fit person? Perhaps you could just say, Hey, have you been leaping in the air with weights or buried alive in a gravel pit? That may be just enough to motivate me to go back to the gym. Only this time I'll do so with a classic Chicago song in my head. And knowing that you would have wanted it this way, I do believe I'm feeling taller every day. This is Steve Eaton. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the City of St. George, presenting the 35th Annual St. George Art Festival, April 18th and 19th in the Town Square in historic St. George. Information at sgartfestival.com. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan.